0: Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad that you've joined me today. I'm excited to spend these two hours with you. Guy Talk is going to be happening in just a minute. And then John and Pam Bloom, we call that Deep Thinker Thursday. That's going to be happening right after this hour. So that's the show today. I'm excited about it. Our power panel today is Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and 007 Justin Jepsen when he decides to show up. That's the power panel gentlemen, welcome.
1: Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Good to be you know, here. What are we, shallow thinkers? <laughs> this is the first hour? Is that what? You guys decide. Okay. <laughs> uh. Well, but we keep
0: people awake. Deep yeah. thinkers put people to sleep. Right. Okay. <laughs> so praying Psalms, praying Proverbs, how often do you do that? Daily?
2: Praying Psalms? For, uh, no, uh, I do it maybe twice a week. Okay. The rest of the time I'm reading scripture and praying from scripture.
1: I had an old pastor tell me when you just get emotional and don't know what to do, you just take out a psalm and read it out loud.
3: I don't do it every
2: day, but I do it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, There's power there. Peter?
3: Yeah, I haven't really prayed the psalms per se, but I really appreciate um, the psalms. And actually... I was with somebody the other day pointing out that the Psalms uh, are very much often have references to Jesus and and have a little prophetic dimension to them, too, as well. So it is interesting to pray through them or at least read through them on a regular basis along those lines. Certainly, they're great for a consistent prayer life.
0: Mm -hmm. I was talking in the green room with the Toms. So, Peter, you are not part of this conversation, and I don't know if I want to bring this up, but I think I will. Only because I found it interesting uh, when Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sin. And then yet when he's on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I wonder what it would have been like if he would have said, I forgive you for you don't know what you're doing.
1: Mm. I think they would have mocked him more. You think so? I think so. Mm-hmm. Like, who are you to tell me you forgive me? Right. First of all, we haven't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And then who do you think you are to
0: have that authority? Yeah, I mean, they're just carrying out their job. Yeah, they're hard-hearted. These guys, this person, prisoner had been contem- condemned to death, so they were just doing their job, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And Jesus had that power, but in his humanity, he still chose to be human, even mm-hmm. at the cross at the last minute, be obedient unto death, so... Pretty powerful, you know, to forgive your enemies at the moment they're crucifying you.
3: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that that phrase has always really been compelling to me, Bill uh, and Tom's as well. It just, I just, I don't know what Jesus's mindset was like. I don't know what was in his heart and his spirit exactly at those moments when he offered those words. But, but I don't imagine it was the idea that he was just really upset and angry about being treated unjustly, kind he kind of knew the scriptural command that he was supposed to somehow forgive anyway, so he sort of rattled it off and, and got it out of the way. I just I, <laughs> I, think the idea that he was able to look at the perpetrators of his own uh, oppression and injustice, and in complete unfairness on every possible level, right? He was the unblemished lamb. He He did not deserve to go to the cross in any way, shape, or form. And yet he found himself there. And in the face of that unjust oppression, he turns and offers forgiveness from what appears to be a heart of mercy, a heart of grace, a heart of compassion for those who are actually doing the injustice. And I'm not sure that we could overemphasize how different that is than to the very understandable response today to to injustice, where we tend to respond to injustice with uh, shaking our fist and and, uh, and yelling and screaming about how unfair might, things might be. And, and again, I'm going to use the word understandable in that, because I think when somebody is a victim of injustice, it, it is terribly understandable to have that response. And yet, I don't know any other way to get around it than the kingdom response is different than the understandable sp- response of this world. And, and I'm not even sure what it looks like for a group of people now, who Bill, are the the you know objective um, victims of injustice to turn around and meet that injustice with forgiveness and love? I, I just that's otherworldly stuff in that moment.
1: Now, Bill, for a deep thinker question related to that, I'll ask g- John and Pam. <laughs> <next hour. laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> but did God the Father forgive them for what they did to His Son?
0: That's a very deep thinker question.
2: It's a good question. Scripture basically doesn't address that particular question. But I was thinking about John three sixteen a little bit earlier. Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. He wasn't forced to go. He obeyed the Father yes, and went to did. the cross. And I think uh, late at night when I really get tired and I don't have anything to do, I'll go to YouTube once in a while, and you'd be surprised how many movies there are. Teenage movies of teenagers picking on other teenagers in high oh, yeah. school, except it's a movie, right? So the teenager they're picking on is the world's karate champion, or you know something like that. And toward the end of the movie, he just beats up everybody. He's got the power, but he doesn't use it because he's a nice kid. Think if he had that power, mm-hmm. and still you chose to go voluntarily. Yeah. That's what Jesus did for us, and that's what makes it so amazing. Well,
1: and I, you know, ultimately, ultimately, who crucified Jesus? The answer is God did. Isaiah fifty three. God was pleased to put him to grief. Yeah. But on the other hand, the, the uh, more immediate people were like Pontius Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and the soldiers. I don't think God the Father did forgive them unless, before they died, they repented and came to Christ. Uh, you know, I, I think God, Jesus asked God to forgive them. Did he do it? Well, for those who repented and, and came to Christ, God did. But that's about... I don't know how else to put it together. So
2: Yeah, well, forgiveness, repentance is monumental in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Jesus didn't address that here. He didn't say, Father, if they repent, no, forgive he them. He just, he just says, it. Father, forgive yep. them. And I think the point on the cross is more about Jesus than it is mm-hmm. the people that had crucified him.
0: Yeah, Here's a listener jumping in with a comment. Why did Jesus forgive those who facilitated his death? Isn't that all love knows how to do? His prayer shows us that, that is the very fact of the matter God knows about the, here's a word for you, insipency of each human. Otherwise, we have no explanation at all about the Apostle Paul. Praise him. About what? The Apostle Paul.
1: Hmm, I don't know. I don't get that part. But...
0: I'll explain it to you during the break.
3: <laughs> okay. Not the brightest guy on the panel. But, I'll, I'll do.
0: <laughs> but that's what I think is common is that's, that's what love knows how to do is to forgive. Yes. And that's true. That is true.
1: Yeah. But did all those people that surrounded the cross that God asked was asked to forgive, did they all end up in heaven with ultimate forgiveness? Well, again, I think they had to repent and come to Christ for salvation if they,
2: to get that. So, Well, that's what the scriptures teach. Yeah. You know, I can forgive somebody. It doesn't mean that they they're not going to bear it. the consequences of their behavior. Right. right. Or they're going to receive it. Or they're going to receive it. Right. But I can forgive them. Yeah. And that's why it's more about me or more about Jesus than it
0: is them.
3: Yeah. All right, Peter, yeah, or do I, we move on? Yeah, I'm ahead. just going to say quickly. I, th- I think it's fair to say love compels, but love doesn't force, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it is so compelling, but it but it never overrides judgment, and um, and so I think there is some measure of um, responding to love that then uh, enables the forgiveness to really take its full effect. But yeah, I, I don't wh- whether I think you do have to ask on some here that there is some measure of we have to accept, embrace, and repent in order for that to be in its full effect. And to quote
1: Ali McGraw from Love Story, Love means never having, having to say you're, say you're sorry. sorry. Buzz! It's the opposite. You know, uh, love is saying, I'm sorry. And if somebody is living a life of impenitent sin, and they never are sorry, they never talk to God about it, they don't love God. You
0: know? All right. Here's a question from my wingman, Terry. He says, is it proper biblical interpretation to take Old Testament promises from God to Israel and apply them to the Christian church here in the United
2: States. (laughs) That's an incredible jump that I'd be very careful of. If I had students that did that when I taught the Bible, I'd be all over their case. You take it in the context it's written in to the people it's written to, and then what I tell people is when you take an Old Testament prophecy— or an Old Testament word, you've got to go to the New Testament and see what Jesus did with it. And if you don't see Jesus dealing with it, or the apostles in their writing, like Paul does, bringing things up, then I would say, absolutely, that's a true prophecy. It was a true prophecy for Israel at that time, but I cannot extend it beyond that time, nor can I extend it to America.
3: Yeah, agreed. Israel is maybe unique, uh, and I can't think of another situation like this where it's both uh, a race of people— and a people that is defined by their faith or the religion. So um, they they were unique in the Old Testament in the sense that they occupied a land, they had a space, they were a people, they were a nation and a country, but they also were defined in that way by their faith. And so the promises given to them as a nation make sense in that context. But I don't think that you can say that any nation then has, in that time or since that time has— been both a nation and the people of God all combined into one, as Re- Israel is meant to be. So it's, it's pretty clear in the New Testament that the people of God are both the Jews who said yes to Jesus, as well as the Gentiles who have been grafted into the people of God that also said yes. And so, so the people of God are spread out geographically and don't know any geographic boundaries associated with it. And I, would ver- I think you'd be on very dicey theological ground to suggest that any one nation, has the promises of God. And and boy, we could go into that a lot well, at this point, uh, yeah. because it's also really common for nations to believe they have the promises of God uh, and, and the blessings of God in certain kinds of way. But that just doesn't really hold up to Scripture, and, Here, and I would be really hesitant to apply that. Here's an
1: example. People quote and the wonderful verse from Chronicles, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways then I will heal here from heaven and heal their land okay that was given to the jews now yeah. it, and i don't years ago when was it the bicentennial that verse was used trying to get america to repent And I think there's a good principle in there. I think, you know, generally it is true if a people, whether they be the Jewish people or American people, if they repent, God will bless their land. And so I think there can be general principles we take out of it but it's not like the americans are going to obey god and get get jerusalem back or something you know so just you just you know there you, it is important to be careful when you quote old testament stuff you know we we don't have to um kill lambs when we sin now we don't have to avoid pork we don't have to worship on saturday you know we don't have to uh, uh get circumcised some of that stuff was specifically for old testament jews only and christians are freed from that it's been fulfilled in christ book of Agreed. hebrews
0: yep the panel is very relieved at what you just said. Oh. Yeah, thank you. All right.
1: Um, <laughs> I don't understand that. Okay.
0: I'll explain that, too, at the break. As a matter of fact, we can, I have, we can we have, should... have
1: a hot dog, Bill? Is that what that meant? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We'll, like take
0: a, we'll take a little break. If you have a question for the panel, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. We'll tackle any question you've got. We'll do our very best. If you like email, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com. Be right back. Back with guide talk, pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and still waiting for Agent 007, Justin Jefferson, to drop in when he's done with his business with the British Secret Service. So that's what the plan <laughs> is. Uh, let's another great question here. Paul writes in Romans ten, verse nine: If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I'd like your panel to explain the difference between verbal confession of Jesus and believing Jesus in the heart. Aren't they the same thing? Have at it, gentlemen.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I'll Eat jump in just quickly, and I'd, I'd love to hear the, the um, Tom's on this as well, but... Uh, the heart in, in Jewish thinking and in Pauline thinking there is sort of the, the seat of the human um, psyche and, and soul. It's where somebody's attitudes and and dispositions and, and true values actually lie. Uh, and the mouth is just simply verbally expressing things. And so if somebody is a hypocrite, it means that they can verbally express things that are inconsistent with what's actually in their heart. And, and I think that happens all the time. But the point being is that somebody could say Jesus is Lord— but if within their values and dispositions and attitudes they, they don't have any kind of a surrendered life, there isn't a sense of, I've said yes to following Jesus, no turning back. Um, I, I, I've said yes to the invitation to follow me. You know, you can say anything you want really verbally, but that doesn't mean that it's consistent with what's going on in the heart. And so uh, there I, there aren't one and the same thing in, insofar as I understand it.
1: well. Couple, a couple of winters ago, I get in the car during a snow blizzard and I drive to my conservative Missouri Synod Lutheran Church that I joined. And I got there and it was closed because of the storm. So I turned around and I drove back to my house and I passed a very liberal a Lutheran Church that was open. So I thought, okay, I'll go in. And the verse for the day, the pastor gets up and reads, Romans chapter 10. If we confess with our lips that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then the pastor said, does that mean if you don't confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, does that mean that you won't be saved? And the pastor said, Not necessarily. And I felt like jumping up and screaming, Yes necessarily. And I think that verse teaches two things are necessary for salvation. You do have to be willing to confess him before others. Jesus said, I'll deny you before men if you deny me. I'll deny you before the father and nephew if, if you deny me. And the second thing, you need to believe in your heart, not in your head, but in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I mean, there are the devil believes in his head. The devil knows Jesus rose from the dead. But for salvation, you believe in your heart. That means you want it. You love
2: it. It's important to you. So, those two things are are crucial. What does the scripture say? Out of the heart the mouth speaks. In other words, you don't separate the two. Now they're two different realities. But if it isn't in the heart, it's not going to come out of the mouth. If it comes out of the mouth but it's not in the heart, you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think about uh I've known so many young men in my ministry who will tell me, "Pastor, I've I've really fallen for so and so in our in our our group or whatever." And I'll say, "Well, have you told her?" "Well, oh, no, I" haven't said a thing yet. I said, well, you know, is it in your heart? Oh, yeah, yeah, I really believe it. I like to marry her and spend my life with her. Then why don't you say it? And it still took these guys a long time. I think the problem is we forget that the Bible is not just a legal transaction like Romans talks about. It is a relationship. And the relationship with Jesus demands that we verbally profess him before others, that we verbally out of our heart say, This is the one I love, and this is the one I will die for. Because if we don't do that, then people really don't get the message. I always get tired of people saying they should be able to tell I'm a Christian by the way I live. That's not what the Scripture says. No, and, you know, the thing, too, somebody says they're a
1: Christian, but they almost never pray. They can go for weeks without praying. Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I... I know we can all be weak in
2: our prayer lives, but to go for weeks without praying, yeah. can you be a Christian and do that? I don't think so. How do you maintain a relationship if you say, yeah, I haven't talked to my wife in three weeks yeah. or, or my husband in three weeks? Yeah. You wouldn't dare do that. Yeah. Same thing here. You know, you want to be able to verbalize that. And I'll be honest, I look for every opportunity I can to verbalize that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. And to share that with others yep. who never given the opportunity, and this is the season
1: to do it. I I want to encourage people. I thought of this driving here today, Bill. Uh, get a bunch of Christian tracks. Go to the go to the website for Good News Tracks or Crossways. But get a bunch of good little salvation tracks on the true meaning of Christmas. A great one is called uh, "What Christmas Is All About." And when you send out your Christmas cards, and when you uh, make out your your gifts. Put it in every single one. So when somebody opens a gift, there it is with the gift, or if they open the Christmas card. This is the season to be very verbal about Christ, I think.
0: Okay, what about the person who might be on their deathbed, and they're days or hours away from slipping into eternity, and they, in their heart, nod yes when it comes to a new relationship with Christ? Would you like to receive Christ And they. They nod yes. They're not confessing anything with their mouth.
1: Well, they can't because they're under.
0: Of course. Yeah. Of course. I think they're
1: saved. Yeah. Of course. Well, of course. Of course they're saved. Yeah. 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 yep. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Peter, you want to weigh in on this? No, yeah, and I just, I agree with that. I think, you know, that some of the questions we ask are understandable about those things, but I just, it, it would be pretty inconsistent uh, to have a, a father in heaven who, the way he is described in the scriptures, especially one who would will that none would perish, but all would be saved. And and that doesn't mean that all will be saved. It just means that the deep desire of our father in heaven is for eternal relationship with us. And and I can't imagine, you know, somebody on their deathbed who maybe can't speak or somebody who is, you know, (laughs) they believe in their heart and God can discern the heart. He's like, well, you just didn't say it out loud. So sorry about that. You know, it just doesn't, (laughs) you know, those sorts sorts of things. I think, again, the the questions are understandable, but I, I think we need to take a bigger picture of who God is there.
2: When I was a kid, there were two things that made me happy. One was having a TV and the other was having food. And when I would eat, I would have a tendency to keep talking. But I would, and my dad would say to my mom, "Alice, you understand Tommy talk? What did he just say?" So I'm confident that even in a coma, if it's coming out of the heart, Jesus
0: hears it, and That's we're okay. Right. That's right. All right. Here's a, a question: What about the 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 how concerned is God that we use the physical talents He's given us, um, especially if you're feeling like you're you're not living the, the career you want to be having, you're, you're not being able to kind of do essentially what God has been gifted, gifted you to do.
2: And sometimes you get the career you want, and sometimes you don't, depending upon the environment you come from, the circumstances that are going on, the educational level, a variety of things. What I try to help people understand is this. Everyone who confesses Jesus as Lord has a clear mission, And that mission is to proclaim the name of Jesus, help make disciples out of others, and help them in turn become disciple makers. I mean, that's very clear in the scriptures. Now, if I want to be a doctor and a surgeon, and I have the ability to do that, I better do it, and I better be the best there is out there, because that becomes my pulpit. When I'm doing surgery on people, and I do the best job I can, and they recover, and I can talk to their family, that's my pulpit for sharing with them the reality of Jesus. And how important he was in that process. My dad was a home builder. I think he ever built homes. I mean, he really built them. They were well built. People knew that in my hometown, they were willing to pay the price to have him build a home. But it's out of that opportunity, then you can take your talents and use your talents as a platform for proclaiming your mission, Mm -hmm. which is Jesus. I
1: feel bad for people. Now and then you hear somebody say something like, well, you know, I really want to be in full-time Christian ministry, but now I, and now I'm an architect, we'll say, mm-hmm. and I've got a wife and three kids, and so I'm. I just feel I've missed God's call in my life, and and I know a pastor that was a successful businessman who did leave it all to to become a pastor, and uh, to me, you know, uh, what I would encourage people to do where there's a will, there's a way. If God wants you to be a some other profession than you are, pray about it and go for it because you're only alive once. Let me push that a little further.
2: I think. And I agree with what you say, but I think it's always when these when people begin to wake up to the Lord Jesus, it's kind of like, are you going to be a missionary? Mm-hmm. Are you going to be a pastor? That's not no for everybody. No, that's right. But are you going to be the best you can be at what you do, mm-hmm. and in that process represent Jesus the very best you can? But
1: be open to God
2: changing that in midstream. If he wants yeah. to change something, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. But I don't think going into, I wish there were a lot of people that weren't in the ministry. I know. Because they don't yeah. represent the Lord well. Yeah. And my attitude is, I would much rather see people that have that genuine call mm-hmm. wind up there. But I believe every Christian who confesses Jesus has a call to be his ambassador yeah. of the gospel wherever they're at. Yep. Yeah.
3: All right. Yeah, I know we got a hard break. I just quickly on that, too. I appreciate what you guys are saying, is that uh, I think it's really frustrating for people when they feel like they have a gift, they have a talent, they have a capacity, and yet there isn't a context in which that is being utilized. And it's one of the hardest things to just trust God that in the moment um, that that he will lead you in in both the days and in the months and in the years ahead. And and Parish, what you've been saying this whole time, we do have a vocation regardless of context. And, and I think right. to learn how to lean into that— <sighs> and not understandably, but unfortunately make an idol out of a certain vocation, I think would be really helpful.
1: But yeah. it, w- it would be important. Okay. We bill have said, to go to break. Bill says it's yeah. right
0: time. Let me know what your questions are. You can send them over via text to <laughs> 877-933-2484, or you can send them via email if you like. And that email is bill at myfaithradio.com. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Guy Talk and the Power Panel in just a minute. talk got some good questions coming in. Keep them coming.
1: Well, Bill, I'd have a big head if, well, if I had that kind of music. Delete. I bet
0: you would. I I bet good you night. Would. That.
1: Who did that? Who sang? Was that Bob Dylan? Who was that? Sing no,
0: Dylan wrote the song. Oh, he did. Yeah, <laughs> another, another friend of mine recorded it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. Uh, welcome back to Guide Talk. The power panel is in place. We've got uh, pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. And uh, my name
4: is Bond, James
0: Bond. And guess who has just joined us? Oh, my. Wow! i I'm going to be getting amazing and keep
4: playing that music. Justin Jepsen. It's a good one. Hey, Take a get it.
1: When did Tom and I and Peter get to be Whenever. James Bond? Oh, never. Ouch. <laughs> actually, never.
2: Actually, actually, I don't want to be James Bond. There, there is Dumbo the Flying Elephant. <laughs>
4: oh.
0: Oh. Anyway, okay. So, Justin, Welcome.
4: Hey, thank you, Bill, and all the guys. Glad Good to be with, with you, you. buddy. Thanks for still having me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, awesome. All right, uh, great question just came in. They're coming in like crazy. Here's an interesting question. Please consider these two thoughts. I've heard it said that hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can. Is that true spiritually, and is it biblical? I know that love covers a multitude of sins is scriptural, but didn't the Lord use war and fighting as documented in the Bible, and that involves hate to eliminate an enemy?
3: Well, I I mean, a couple of things. That's a Martin Luther King Jr. quote, uh, and it's a powerful one, especially when you read the rest of it about the descending cycle of violence that leads us to a night void of the stars. But um, I— I think there, it isn't scriptural. It isn't a specific passage that referenced that. I mean, clearly, D- Jesus does invite us to, to meet hate with love. But the other thing that I would suggest is that um, that war does not indicate hate per se, uh, necessarily. I mean, the, the God True. of war in the Old Testament is often the God who, through grief and disappointment and in tears, uh, uses the power to move his hand against the, the the people who would otherwise not have him. But I think you're probably on safer ground to think about Everybody in this world is is a child of God in the sense they are created by God, and and it would devastate me if I had to take my own kids out of the room for some reason, because their their hearts were so hard that they were threatening the people around them, that they were threatening the future of our family, that they were threatening the future of our home, anything along those lines. Those are the times when God acts, and, uh, and that doesn't mean I would hate my kids. It would mean through grief and tears and disappointment, I'd have to move against them for, for who they're harming. So I think there's a lot in that statement. I'd be curious what you guys think about that. Uh, it isn't a scriptural statement, but Jesus mm-hmm. does invite us to break the cycle of both um, emotional, relational, and physical violence by meeting it with, uh, with 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 concern for the other person ahead of oneself, which is the definition of love. We can stop there. Yeah.
4: Yeah. <laughs> no, we can't. That's, Bill. Yeah, that's so well said, Peter. I yeah, think well that's, said. Um, well done. Yeah, I, the, the only thing I would not even add, but in terms of the scripture that came to my mind was Romans twelve twenty one, where Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome mm-hmm. evil with good. Mm-hmm. So I think we can certainly, you know, deduce from that. We don't overcome evil by more evil, um, and uh, but we overcome evil with good. And, and even things like what, what Peter's talking about, you know, we can even think, or even thinking of the wrath of God and His judgment, th- that is good. And that's part of, that's a demonstration and actually a manifestation of His goodness, um, uh, when that's displayed. And so, um, but, but I think that, uh, yeah, I think we have to, um, kind of delineate between that, what, you know, and at the end, lo- love is going to overcome. Love will f- find a way, um, and, and really love will win back. Love will redeem. Even, even if like to Peter's analogy to remove the kids away, <laughs> um, God's always going to be searching for a uh, way—he's still going to be searching for a way to bring them back and to restore them back to family. It's
2: interesting. If you look at our current political situation, and I'm not going to go into any detail, the problem is we have people now not simply disliking or hating the policies. They hate the people, Mm -hmm. and they want the people destroyed, and they want the people to lose their job, and they want the people to do that. When we talk about the Lord, the Lord has hate. He hates sinfulness. He hates people that ignore him. He hates those things. He hates their behavior. The people he still loves, his redemptive work is still even for them. But there's a hatred toward their behavior. The problem for most of us humans is that we don't do a good job at separating out hatred of the behavior from love of the individual. And I think that Jesus could, and that's what we want to do because we aren't to condone or love bad behavior. We're to literally turn away from it and and uh, the scripture says even use the word you know hate at times i've seen that many times i was Mm -hmm. just looking but our goal is redemption where the world's goal is destruction and that's the major difference between biblical love and biblical hate
1: and you know the way i'd answer that there are two truths in the bible one is god is love in first john And in this, God shows his love to us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the the heavy duty love of God is in the Bible. The heavy duty holiness and wrath of God is also in the Bible. There are verses that say that God hates certain people. Mm -hmm. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And there's other verses too where, where, and then. David says God do I not hate them with perfect ha- hatred those who you know are against you. So somehow we got to put all that together that God is a God of love but there are some verses not many that talk about God hating people. And the way I would put that together is those who seek God, trust in Christ, they're forgiven their sins, they have the love of God. Those who continually harden their heart and reject him become eventually objects of his wrath, not only in this life, but then for eternity. So we need to repent and come to Christ because you don't want that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Peter, I'm going to give you the last word on this one.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's fair in, in a lot of ways. I think we just have to be a little bit careful when we, um, if we associate hate with like, I, I despise and, and I can't stand and, and the kind of hatred we experience in this world Um, with the kind of hatred that God is talking about, especially because there is some—and this is maybe too much to get into now— but there's some linguistic fun that the Jews are having when they talk about God. It's often these contrasts of love and hate. And and obviously Jesus does not mean that— in order to follow me, you have to hate your parents. Like you can't mm-hmm. stand to be right. around them. Like when you're in the room with them, um, you just like, get out of my face, I can't take you, you know, anymore. And so I think we have to be a little bit careful when we think of, uh, when, when we wonder what biblical hate involves. And, and, and I don't, you know, Jepson, maybe you've done some work on some of that too, or either of the Toms, but I, I think uh, more than anything to superimpose our version of hate upon God's version of hate mm-hmm. um, might be a little dodgy. Good point, mm-hmm. good point, Peter. I agree. Yep. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Let's move on. Here's a question. Um, I think this, let's see. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run with that you may obtain in it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Well, let's see. Um... I work hard, I, I. Uh, what happens in the end if there's only one person who receives the prize, am I going to end up being disqualified if I don't win? And if I'm saved by grace through faith, how can I possibly be disqualified at the end of my life? Any thoughts on that? That's out of 1 Corinthians 9.
1: Well, lots of people receive the prize. Paul says, uh, was it Philippians? Um, I uh, forget what lies behind straining forward. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which God will give to me and to all who have loved his appearing. So it's not like only one person is going to win this race. Tons of people are going to win the race. Mm -hmm. But
2: think about it this way. When you came home from school in elementary and you wanted something really bad and you said to your mom, but Billy and Johnny are Mm -hmm. doing it, what did your mother say to you? No. No. (laughs) <laughs> she, she would say, I'm not talking about Billy and John, I'm talking mm-hmm. about you Right. In this passage, Paul's talking about his own run mm-hmm. That he he's not saying the others don't get in mm. He's simply saying, I want to run that race to the very end And not stumble and not fall And not go back on yeah. what I've been doing So that I'm disqualified right. I want to get to the end yep. You know, And I think about that all the time I want to make sure that I run the race for Jesus Until my last breath and and get there and cross that finish line. Not that that I'm not achieving my own salvation. That has nothing to do with it. But it is loving Jesus to the very end, or the life to come. That's the key. It's still by grace. It's still by grace. Yep. It's still by faith.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I, think that's, I think that's right on in terms of looking at Paul's analogy here. I mean, he's not he's not making this as a as a blanket statement across all of Christianity, where you know it's this big, giant, cosmic competition, and only one of us gets to be with Jesus at the end, you know? Um, you know, Hebrews 12 says, let us, let us run with endurance, the race marked out for us. So I think there's, there's a course um, and a ministry that we've all um, received from the Lord that we are called to steward. And so I think what Paul is talking about here is using this analogy as, um, you know, as an Olympic athlete, you know, uh, in terms of how he's training and how, he, how he's going to run that race, how he's going to discipline himself. Um, so that he stewards uh, the gift of God's grace and the ministry of the gospel well.
2: You know, sometimes what we forget in Christianity is that we are to always bring the love of Jesus with us, but we're also to bring the irritation of the scriptures with us. And sometimes we don't let people get irritated. And what I mean by that is I've had many older people say to me, I'll say to them, well, Harriet, you know, you've been in church all your life. You know, you were confirmed here. You were raised here. You were married here. Are you confident that when you die, you'll be with Jesus? And I have had so many of them say, well, pastor, I don't know if I've been good enough. Mm-hmm. And my response is, if that's the <laughs> basis, you won't get in. So, Harriet, you're, I've actually said to people, Harriet, you're in trouble if you're basing it on what you can do. Yeah, But it's not on what you do. It's what Jesus has done that we cling to. The problem is when we—here's the problem I have with love. Sometimes love gets mushy. Oh, we don't want to hurt Harriet. You know, she's an old lady going to church. No, I want to be there for Harriet at the very end to make sure she's got the right story and the right understanding and and not back away from that. And
1: and what do you do with this? this, Here's a dear lady uh, from my church, if I remember right. Love the Lord. She's on her deathbed, I think. Well, Mrs. So-and-so, are you sure you're going to heaven tonight? Well, Pastor Tom, I hope I've been good enough. And I said... That's not the way it works. No. We're not good enough. All we deserve is hell. But because Christ died on the cross and and by faith in him, that's the way you get to heaven. And she said, oh, that's what I meant. That's right. And I left the hospital room thinking, only the Lord can parse where she's at. <laughs> but you gave her the opportunity. <laughs> well, I did. And and that's I mean, I, that's the you know, I think people can get so confused on the law and not understand the gospel. So
0: anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll... I'll jump into this question. I was divorced about five years ago. My spouse had some mental health concerns, and I ended up uh, getting some abuse from her, even though I was divorced many years ago. I still go back to Matthew 19. My pastor at my church has helped me with this. I am LCMS Lutheran, but sometimes I still struggle with guilt. Any suggestions on letting this go?
3: yeah I, if he's talking about Matthew 19 i assume he's referencing the idea of where jesus says that um that you sh- that you shouldn't get divorced except in the case of and then the question is is what's the case of and in some of the scriptural passages re- might call it sexual immorality some might interpret it as adultery and infidelity and so one of maybe four of the common views within uh, most bible believing churches just one of those views would say that the only grounds for divorce would have to be related to a, a sexual infidelity and adultery in the marriage. And and so people do struggle then when there might be the case of physical abuse or the, or the kids are legitimately in danger. I mean, are these grounds for divorce or do you just you have to stay in it or, or what do you do in that instance? And by contrast, I certainly know marriages where people have almost wished that their spouse would commit adultery. So they felt like they had sort of the, the grounds of adultery. And probably the best reading I've done on that one, Bill, uh, came actually from John Piper. He was doing some work on on explaining why in Matthew 19 does Jesus seem to offer this exception. And yet in, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus has the very same teaching recorded, there isn't any exception. Like, what's going on here? And, and he made the point that um, in, in Matthew, it's the one story that begins with Joseph talking about having it in his mind to divorce Mary— and to do so quietly. And he did that because he found out that she was pregnant. So he believed in his mind she already was in covenant with another person, Mm -hmm. and you can only be in one one flesh covenant at one time. And so he was rending himself from that because he believed she being pregnant already must have been in that that covenant and, and was seen as being right to do so. And what Piper is pointing out is that Matthew needed to stay internally consistent in saying that in case of... And, and the Greek word there, in case of, is just the general word of pornea. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know how to keep explaining this too much, but um, it's not the word mochea that mm-hmm. has to do with the sexual adultery. Mm-hmm. It's pornea, which is just a general immorality. And Piper was saying, "What's the immorality?" Well, he w- Matthew is just going back to Matthew one and and saying that the immorality was that uh, it's the idea that you belong to another person. You already are found to be in relationship. Uh, with somebody else in that way. And thus, uh, nobody, you, you shouldn't get married in that way. Luke doesn't tell the Joseph and Mary story, so Luke doesn't feel the need to offer an exception. And the point of all of that is, I think, to become dogmatic based on a Matthew 19 passage that says that in case of when it's not really referring to just adultery in general, it, it, there's something else going on that Matthew is doing, I think then puts the Church in a really interesting position to say, so are there situations in which a marriage needs to dissolve? And, uh, and boy, that's where the question gets really tricky really quickly. But I don't think we should be using Matthew 19 as sort of this get-out-of-jail-free card if there's adultery. And if not, we shouldn't even consider it.
0: Mm-hmm. Take a little break. You're listening to the Guide Talk. We still have time for a question or two. Let me know what it is, we We'll be right back with the Power Panel. I'm glad power panel is in place. We have got pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepsen, Peter Kapsner. Thank you, gentlemen, for participating in this lively hour. I always look forward to it, and it's Me too. always lively.
1: It is. It's it is. A
0: nice job done by all. Thank you very much. You all have been get a lot of brain power today. There's some great answers that have been coming across. <laughs> Even everyone's performing way above average.
1: Well, Bill, thank I'm f- you. I'm feeling better about this now.
0: <laughs> All right, here's a here's a verse out of, uh, let's see, Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes about, um, let's see, I thank my God in remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. All right, let's talk about the that expression, the uh, partnership in the gospel. We hear a lot about church membership. Do we ever hear that? Expression, the partnership in the gospel, and how would partnership differ from church membership?
4: Well, I think um, I remember having a conversation with uh, the former missions pastor of the church that I served at for a number of years, and he the reason why he he left his his role was he was, um, you know, he was a church member, but he was leaving to go into full time missions, and I remember we were having a conversation about. Philippians, um, when he's in that process, and we were just—he was trying to figure out what's the best language to describe, you know, kind of his relationship now to the church. Um, and even though he's not going to be attending there because he's going to be going overseas, and we were—we went right to this exact passage where I mean, Paul, the book of Philippians—you know—a lot of commentators have talked about it as—it's um, kind of like a missionary uh, letter back to, of Paul back to a supporting church. And I think this idea of a partnership in the gospel, you know, where we highlight the level of, you know, service as the missionary, as the one who goes, um, I think what Paul is bringing here, he's actually equaling the playing field in terms of value from God's perspective, in terms of our partnership in the gospel, that there are those that give, there are those that go, there are those that pray, there are those that send. And both the the sender and the goer and the receiver— are all a part of God's plan um, in terms of the expansion and the growth of the gospel. And so I think it's it's recognizing how different parts of the body of Christ have a different role to play, but those different roles share equal value in the sight of God, and each one is essential and used by God in a unique and strategic way.
2: Most churches define, if you're a member, based upon the fact— are you ready for this? That in the last couple of years, did that person— Worship at least once or take communion and contribute to the church treasury. That's pathetic. Mm -hmm. But that's American concept of membership. Mm -hmm. Membership. I can be a member of something and not even know you're a member. No big deal. Partnership, though, is a whole different concept. Partnership means mutual responsibility. That I am not just here to take care of my own well-being. I'm here to also work with you and we work together toward one common goal. And I think we've lost so much of that in Christianity. We we hire a pastor, or we yeah. call a pastor, yeah. or we call a youth director. You know, and and then some people volunteer to work with it. But the point is, it is all of our responsibilities for the mission of the gospel. And we have to find how to work together in that. And that's why uh I rarely ever talked about partnership the last twenty years of my ministry. I talked about partnership a lot, mm-hmm. but membership. But not membership.
1: No. And yeah. you know, I think too, with I hope all of our listeners are members of a church somewhere. Sure. And that you partner with your church and that you give your tithe and your time and your talents to your church. But then I hope you also partner with other ministries. I, for oh, sure. instance, I love International Christian Concern. Um, Voices of Martyrs. So you partner with people overseas who are helping the persecuted. Uh, there's something called the Timothy Initiative. Bill did a, uh, an interview with them. They're starting churches in Nepal, and you're partnering with them with your money. Um, just uh, uh, you know, helping, uh, like for instance, uh, an abortion clinic opened two minutes from my house now. And God bless people from Pro-Life Action Ministries that are out there handing out Christian literature, trying to get women not to abort their babies, and you can partner with them by just you know either praying for them or giving money to their group. But you know, it's we all need to partner with our church, our local church, but then partner with other things too,
0: like Faith Radio.
2: There you go, Bill. Why not?
0: See, that's why I sit in the big chair. <laughs> Boy, that was good. Did you see, how I pulled that one out. Uh, there you oh, go. Se-
4: seamless.
2: That's yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh speaking of that um let me move on to my next topic which is that of sowing and reaping is is it a principle regarding the word of god or is it a principle regarding financial stewardship or both
2: both it can be i'm not going to push both and the reason i don't push that is this we have so overbalanced on the financial part of it and so overbalanced if your faith of the lord you're gonna get ten percent back. You give a big gift now for the end of the year, you're gonna get something back. That almost yes, that's brought up in scripture. And I'm not gonna say that isn't there, but that's not really the focus. The sowing and reaping is everything to do with you know, putting your effort into people who don't know the Lord so they have that opportunity to hear the good news. And I think what I worry about is that we have given people a way out by giving money. Now we need money, I'm not gonna argue that. But it is much more than money. It is the investment of your time and your life into the life of these other people. And that's where the gospel takes root. And that's where things happen.
1: Yeah, there's sowing and, and reaping, as Paul says, who you sows to his flesh. will from the flesh, right. reap corruption. He who f- f- sows to the spirit. will from the spirit, reap eternal life. So there's all kinds of sowing and reaping in the Bible. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and I think all of it is, is is spiritual. You know, I think we can't have a false dichotomy of what we do with our finances is separate from what we do with, right. you know, with with the word of God, right? You know, I think it, I think it, there is a sense in which there is a both and. Um and I think we see that when Paul's talking about your partnership in the gospel and he was talking about how they they financially contributed to his missionary call and ministry. Um and there were partners in that. But he also wrote to the Corinthians saying, you know, that he who plants and he who waters are one. Mm-hmm. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field, God's building. You know, so I think that sowing and reaping is is kind of kind of a way of talking about the uh, kind we, of a dynamic and a way of life yeah. within God's kingdom. You can
2: always talk about both and. I'm comfortable. Too often, that's not what I hear out of the pulpits. Right.
3: It's usually stewardship time.
4: Mm-hmm. It's either or, but it's always a both and. I think mm-hmm. and more often in the kingdom of God, it's a both end.
3: Oh, yeah and do you guys do you guys think it's fair too to be real hesitant about the idea of you know if I sow or use my money financially in the right things then i'm going to re, re, you know reap some sort of reward uh according to you know like things start going really well in my life uh that that just seems like a bit of a heresy that i think a lot of people end up falling into
0: mm-hmm. all right gentlemen it's uh kind of a little bit out of time been a oh, fast no uh, been a fast hour well, we have
1: three minutes and i could sing something
0: Bill. Well, what would you like to sing tom because you know what it's it's not the uh, worst thing uh, oh. that happens when you sing oh isn't that nice it's yeah. the second <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's what i thought
0: oh boy that's rough no I, yeah what do you got you got a little a little hymn no i'm kidding no i'm nervous i can't sing Bill. oh I, you've got I, a verse of something let's hear it a little christmas uh oh i'm one of my
1: favorite christmas songs. you know i'm just thinking of this I'm seven years old sitting in church in Omaha and they start singing as angels bending near the earth to strum their hearts of gold. And I can remember when I was seven thinking, isn't that beautiful (laughs) but you know just the whole beauty of this season and i hope everybody has a great christmas and don't let people that tell you that yeah but it has pagan roots well again who says the devil owns december 25th if the ancient romans wanted to worship saturn that's their problem Mm -hmm. you know but i can worship jesus on december 25th so and hopefully every day and And we just amen amen (laughs) so there's my song
0: all right, appreciate a little music on the afternoons with Bill Arnold's show. It's always uh, always good. The ratings spike when that happens. So, you know. I bet they does. Yeah, spike okay. for the yeah. other stations. There no. you go. I didn't we say what direction they spiked. Yeah. Oh. Ouch. I just said they spiked. All right, uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, have a wonderful Christmas next Thursday, of course. is Christmas Eve, so we won't be uh, meeting, but uh, we'll catch up in a couple more weeks. Uh, so we'll take a little break. When we come back, uh, John and Pam Bloom. Deep Thinker Thursday is up next. Looking forward to that. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.